The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Daniel chapter 3. Uh, before you use a picture of uh, some of our men at the men's conference, uh, we had the privilege of being together last weekend and uh, almost 300 men together at Camp Tejas. Guys, mark on your calendar. It's a great time for men to be away uh, with other men who love the Lord and uh, challenge one another in the faith. Uh, great speaker, great music, and a lot of stuff to do there at Camp Tejas. So great time away. Daniel chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width 6 cubits. That's 90 feet by 9 feet. He set it on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. The Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble all of his leaders, the leaders of the satraps, prefects, uh, governors, counselors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come in for this time of dedication. Then in verse 4, after he had the image set up, a herald loudly proclaimed, to you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear all these instruments, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But, verse 6, whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of of a furnace of blazing fire. Father, as we look at this chapter and study it, we pray that you would let us see truth, understand truth, and then respond to truth. As we look at the faith of these men, as we look at the great God that you are, Father, we pray that our lives will be different and you would give us the grace to apply your word. In the name of Jesus, amen. Faith. This is really a chapter on two things. It's about how great our God is in the faith of three young men. Faith. Some people live life by faith in Christ. Some people uh, have their faith and it's well known. Some people, every day of their lives, their faith is important to them. Such was the story of a uh, grandmother who lived in Tucson, Arizona. If you've been with us for a while, you've heard me use this story before. She was well known for her persistent, deep faith. She was a woman of great faith and, and she was willing to talk about it. And every day she began her day the same way. She would walk out on her front porch, she would see the sunrise, and she would raise her hands and shout, praise the Lord. But she had a neighbor who uh, didn't believe that. And so this neighbor would stand on the front porch every day and shout back at her, there ain't no Lord. And so this went on back and forth, back and forth for years. Uh, during the t- days uh, that later, the grandmother was beginning to struggle financially And uh, she walked out one morning and there was a large bag of groceries on the front porch. And she raised her hands and says, praise the Lord, you've provided for me. And her neighbor jumped out from behind a tree and said, I bought those groceries, there ain't no Lord. She raised her hands and looked at heaven and said, Lord, you not only sent me food, but you made the devil pay for it. I mean, some people live their lives by faith continuously and all the time, don't they? I mean, you know people like that. The name of Christ is on their lips. They're always living by faith, walking by faith, and their faith is always deepening. This morning, we're going to see three young Hebrew men, and their faith was deep. Their faith was in a God who could protect them, who could comfort them, who could care for them. But once again, just as we saw that the book of Daniel is really more about Daniel's God than it is about Daniel, I hope what we see is this chapter is more about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God than it is about them. We're going to see a great God in the midst of this as they trust him, as they put their faith in him. And so if, if, if their faith was tested, I mean really tested. This isn't a test like when you drive up to Walmart or the mall or HEB and you begin to pray for a parking place that's close in and you end up four parking places away, and you begin to question God's goodness. It's not that kind of a test. 
But this is a test. It's a test like when somebody stands before you and confronts you about your faith or when the prodigal doesn't come home or when the boyfriend says, if you love me, you will, or when you've been mistreated by a friend because of your faith. It's a real test of faith. And that's what these three Hebrew young men are challenged with. The story of the fiery furnace is a very familiar story. We're going to buzz through it pretty quickly. And uh, it could also be entitled Bow or Burn. I I mean, I put the title in front of you, the fiery furnace, but you could really flip it and say Bow or Burn is what this chapter is about. Because that's the gauntlet that was laid down. That's the gauntlet that was laid down by King Nebuchadnezzar. So uh, in the first 12 verses, their their faith is tested. It's really a test of the faith of these three Hebrew young guys. Well, Nebuchadnezzar builds this image of gold. First of all, it would have to be plated gold because it would be too heavy to stand at these dimensions. Uh, it's really 90 feet by 9 feet. It's taller than the Scott and White Clinic right behind us. I, I mean, this, this is a 90-foot statue. It's huge. He put it on the plain of Dura. So why would you put a statue uh, out on a plain? Well, it's so it would be highly visible for everyone to see. I mean, you put it on a plain. You've driven through West Texas. You've seen West Texas. You know what it's like. In fact, somebody sent me an email, a guy in West Texas said, it's so flat out here, I watched my dog run away for three days. <laughs> and, and, and that's what it was like. He put it in a place of prominence, a place where everybody could see it, and he calls in the leaders of his government because as the leadership goes, so goes the nation, and he wants to make sure that they will adhere to what he's ad- ad- admonishing them to do and what he's inviting them to do and demanding them to do. And so when you look at the scriptures, you see that the herald goes out and he proclaims to all the people are gathered there, all the leaders of Babylon are called and summoned together. And in the summoning, he's got an orchestra, and the minute the conductor raises his hand and he drops the baton, at that moment in time when the music begins, everybody's to fall on their face and fall down and worship this golden image. You might wonder where Nebuchadnezzar came up with this idea. Where did he come up with the idea to build an image? The scriptures really don't, the two things they don't tell us in this chapter One, there's no chronological indicator to determine uh, how much time has transpired from chapter 2 to chapter 3. It's not there. The second thing that's not told to us is what does this image look like? We know it's dimensions. That's all we know. It is possible that uh, this was uh, Nebuchadnezzar's doing, and it's possible that he was incorporated into this image. Maybe not, maybe so, we don't know. We do know in the previous chapter, when he had a dream, and no one could uh, tell him what the dream was or interpret that dream, Daniel finally did, that in chapter 2, verse 28, at the end, or 38 rather, at the end of it, he saw this huge image, gold, silver, bronze, and then feet of clay and iron, that Daniel interpreting the dream said, you, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. So he builds a golden statue. Perhaps it was to honor him so that he might be worshipped. We don't know. The scriptures don't tell us, but that's a good possibility. Irregardless, he builds this graven image. He builds this idol, this huge idol in the plains of Dora. He calls all of his leaders in, and verse 6 is very clear. You fall down in worship or you're burned. Bow or burn. That's your choice. I mean, that's a choice that's given to them. And so the music begins, and at the end of verse 7, the men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And so here's Nebuchadnezzar's megalomaniac. He sets up this idol. He wants all the nations to worship the same idol. And you can see there are hundreds of people gathered here, all the leaders of the government. And as the orchestra begins to play, everybody falls on their face to worship this idol, except three young men. They keep standing. They keep standing. You can imagine at that point in time, somebody pops Shadrach in the ribs and says, the music started, you better bow down or you die. 
Or, or, or maybe they go to Meshach and say, what are you doing? Are you crazy? You're going to be, you're going to be cremated in a second. You'll be ash in a flash. I, I mean, surely they had others that were concerned about them, but these guys knew what the scriptures taught and they believed it and they wanted to follow it. You see, all the way back in the time of Moses when the law was given, we have something called the Ten Commandments. You remember those? In the Ten Commandments, it says this, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, that's on the earth beneath, that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So uh, we know from the scriptures that they were not to bow down before graven images that proclaimed to be gods. They were not to worship any other gods. That was laid out before them. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew this. They knew what the scripture said. They knew what the word of God said. They knew what they weren't to worship other gods, and they chose not to do so. You know what's pretty interesting to me? Now, those words were given to the nation of Israel during the time of Moses. You fast forward a couple of thousand years, Christ comes to our planet. So Christ comes, he lives on our planet. He is crucified, he's resurrected, he's ascended. One of his disciples, his beloved disciple, is John. John has written the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. So now from the time of Moses to the time of John, at least a couple of thousand years, the nation of Israel had trouble with idols then. And when John writes to the church at the end of 1 John, that little book, it only has five chapters, he concludes that book by saying this, little children, keep yourselves from idols. His very last verse, he says, uh, Kids, I want you to know, talking to the church, uh, I want you to know, my children, that one of the things you need to do is to keep yourself from idols. Now, this is thousands of years after Moses has written, been given the Ten Commandments by God, the law, the Mosaic law. It's uh, years after Christ has come to our planet. He's lived here. He's been crucified. Uh, John knew his life. The church has been birthed. And what John knew is that there's a propensity in every man and woman to create idols. This is true in the nation of Israel. There was a time when God sent a plague on the nation of Israel, and he said, if you don't look to this bronze serpent that's built, uh, that, that has been cast and, and raised on a pole, if you don't look to it, you die. And so the people that looked to it, they lived. Pretty interesting. 600 years later, there's the Reformation under Hezekiah. You know, you know what they found? That They brought out this snake, this bronze snake, it had become an idol. And rather than worshiping the one who had saved their lives, they worshiped the snake. You can check it all out it's in the Old Testament. And so they worshiped the snake. They even named it. They named it Nehushtan, not a creative name. It means a piece of brass. That's what it means. But they had taken that which had God's one who saved them, and they, take, they took the symbol, and they worshiped the symbol rather than substance, which was, the, which was God. Same thing happens to us, doesn't it? Jot down in your notes, Tim Keller. Tim Keller, Counterfeit Idols. Tim Keller, Counterfeit Idols, one of the best books that I've read on idols. Uh, I, I, you know, John gives us that warning. I, I'm glad that you know, after the first century's church struggled with idols, the church and folks like us since have not had that same battle, aren't you? Get any idols? You may be thinking, well, maybe not. Uh, here's how Keller defines an idol. What is an idol? It's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart, anything that absorbs your imagination more than God, anything you seek to give what only God can give. That's what an idol is. He goes on and he says this. He says, idols capture our imagination. We can locate them by looking at our daydreams. What do you enjoy imagining? 
What are your fondest dreams? We look to our idols to love us, to provide us with value, a sense of beauty, a sense of significance, and a sense of worth. When you're daydreaming, what do you think about? Do you daydream about uh, retirement? Daydream about an expanded portfolio? Daydream about a date when you're stuck in the dorm? Do you daydream about a new car, a new house? Do you daydream about a relationship? When you think about your dreams, what are your fondest dreams? Keller says, that's how you identify your idol. That's how you identify what it is you're chasing after. Now, it's amazing how we have a propensity to create idols. We have a propensity to create idols. I mean, that's the warning from John in 1 John chapter 5. Idols. We have them all over our culture, all over our society. I mean, how many of you set aside a little time for tonight to watch the Broncos beat the Panthers? Raise your hand. Yeah. How many of you are Panther fans out there? Yeah, not many of you dare raise your hand after that statement, right? I hope Peyton wins and retires is what I hope that happens. But let's face it, you know, honestly, I don't have a dog in that hunt. You know what my idol is tonight? The commercials. I'd like to see the commercials more than the game. If you go to CNN right now on their website, what you'll find is you can look at 50 years worth of commercials. And if you got that kind of time, you need to come talk to me. I mean, literally, every commercial that's been played during the Super Bowl for the last 50, this is the 50th Super Bowl for the last 49 years, you can go to CNN's website and you, look, you can look at every one of those. That's an idol. If you're going to look at that for a humpteen hours, I don't know how many hours it is when you place it all together, but that becomes an idol. We make, idol, we make idols out of rock stars. We make idols out of movie stars. We make idols out of athletes. We make idols out of everything. I Googled up idols. In 2002, the former barber of Elvis Presley sold a clump of Elvis's hair for $115,000. I've got two questions. What in the world is barber doing with a piece of his hair anyway? And uh, secondly, who is stupid enough? I can't say stupid. I've got grandkids. Uh, we were there Monday night with our grandkids, and I used that word, and uh, Emerson, our granddaughter, went to my daughter and said, Papa Doe used the S word again. So I've got to be really careful about that. Um, the former barber of Elvis Presley sold a clump of the... Who's going to pay $115,000 for a piece of somebody's hair? I, I certainly not, as you can tell. <laughs> Justin Timberlake's half-eaten French toast was sold three years ago for $3,000. I mean, did some waitress just take it off the plate and keep it and, say, and put it on eBay and say, I'm going to sell it? I mean... How do people do this kind of stuff? A piece of bubble gum chewed by Britney Spears sold for 160 bucks. I mean, somebody follow around, pick up bubble gum off the sidewalk and post it and say, I mean, we can do it any of it. Maybe I've got some of Britney's bubble gum. I don't know. I'll put it on eBay and see if it sells. But I mean, we do stuff like that, don't we? I've got an idol on me right now. For some of you, you know what your idol is? You can't live without it. Boom, right there. Can't live without it. You ever take off on a trip, realize you forgot your phone, and go back? Don't look at me like that. <laughs> you ever, hey, I've watched people break out in cold sweats. Man, they reach in their pockets. Pastor, I don't have my phone. I don't have my phone. And? I mean, really. There's now a word called nomophobia. Nomophobia. The British put it together, it's a psychological term. No mo, no mobile, no mobile, no mobophobia. It's actually a diagnosed disease now. People that have phobias about leaving their phone or not having their phone, not having their phone with them. 
How many of you, your world begins to, 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 to just turn apart when you feel in your pockets or look in your purse and can't find your phone? Don't look at me like that. Some of you go crazy. Honey, would you go call my number? I can't find my phone. Uh, you know, I, I don't know where my phone, baby. I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I, we we got to go look for my phone. Some of you are so addicted to this thing. Not me, right, babe? No. We had to make rules at our house about how often I could use my phone. I mean, um, so it goes in my pocket. If you wonder what I'm doing up here, I'm looking at my Bible on my phone uh, when I pull it out. I don't text or whatever else unless I absolutely have to on occasion. I looked up statistics. People check their phones an average of how many times a day? 54 times a day. That's the average. If you're 21 or under, it's 154 times a day. (laughs) Right, guys? I mean, let's be honest. Is that right? Am I wrong? Am I wrong? No, I'm not wrong. I do it 254 times a day. That's because I only have one eye. I only see half of it at a time, so I've got to do it more than anybody else. Okay? So, so their faith is tested. I mean, the, the test is, hey, you bow or you burn. If, if you don't bow, you're going to burn. And look at verse 8. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward. Now, if you remember in the previous chapter, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. He called the wise men into the court, and he said, you have to tell me your dream, and after you tell me, your, after you tell me the dream, you have to interpret. And they said, nobody can do that. Nobody can tell you what the dream is. You have to tell us what your dream is so we can interpret. He said, no. He said, you got to tell me. And they said, only a God could do that. And sure enough, the God of the universe showed up, told Daniel the dream, Daniel interpreted the dream, and all the wise men, including the Chaldeans, were spared. These guys, the Chaldean, owed their lives to the God of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and now they're going to rat out on them. Look at what it says in verse 8. Some of the Chaldeans came forward and they said, O king, live forever. You yourself made this decree that at the sound of all this music, everybody's to fall down and worship you. Verse 11, whoever does not fall down, whoever doesn't worship you is going to be cast in the fiery furnace. There are certain Jews here whom you have appointed over the administration of the province, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men have disregarded you. They don't serve your gods or worship the golden image that you set up. Everybody bowed down, but three guys didn't. You were responsible for them. They did not honor you, and uh, there's a problem here. The Chaldeans who owe their lives to Daniel's God and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God, they were the ones who ratted out on them. Why? May I suggest to you that verse 12 may give us a hint of that? These, or there, are certain Jews whom you did what? appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon. We're Babylonians, they're Jews, you put them in an office higher than our office, and uh, may I suggest to you that jealousy is the reason why they ratted out? In fact, if you turn to the previous chapter, after Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream, which you find in verse 47, the king said to Daniel, surely your God is a God of God, the Lord and reveal, Lord of kings, revealer of mysteries. Since you've been able to reveal this mystery, then the, God, then the king promoted Daniel, gave him many great gifts, made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, chief prefect over all of the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel, this is verse 49, made request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province. And so we 
recognize that God has appointed Jewish men to rule over Babylonians. They refuse to bow down to the king's God who he set up on the plains of Dura. And they say, you know what? These guys you appointed, you've got to do something about them because they refuse to worship your God. Jealousy will drive a man mad. Drive you crazy. And it's wrong. Jealousy has a few synonyms like envy and coveting. Jealousy will decimate friendships. Jealousy will cause us to struggle in ministries. Jealousy will tear families apart. Chuck Swindoll in a little book that he wrote, I'm sorry, Tim Kimmel in Little House on the Freeway, says jealousy starts in our hearts as a seed and gets watered and fertilized by our emotions. Your best friend gets a promotion with a significant pay raise, the seed germinates. Vacation time comes, everybody takes off, you stay back because you can't afford to go, the seed sprouts roots. You go shopping with your best friend, she fits beautifully into dresses that same size she wore when she got married 25 years ago. You stare at the size of your dress, holding it up and noticing it's gone up several digits since your wedding day. The seed begins to germinate. It begins to pop through the surface when you see someone else's project is funded, someone else's research gets mentioned, someone else goes out on the date, someone else is invited to dinner, someone else goes out with your friends, someone else gets the proposal, someone else gets proposed to, someone else spends time with your best friend, someone else, someone else, someone else. Jealousy. You know, the only way to overcome jealousy is to count the blessings that God gives us, not to look at somebody else's. Do you thank God for the blessings in life he's given you? Or do you say, those guys you appointed over there are the culprits? Jealousy will ruin a ministry, it'll ruin a family, it'll destroy a relationship. And so they say, hey, king, these guys didn't obey your command, they're not doing what you asked. So now crunch time comes. <clears throat> if you look at verse 12, Nebuchadnezzar's mad. I, I mean, he is so mad, his face turns red with anger. It, it says, <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before him. But he's the guy who has appointed them. He, he is the guy who has put them in high positions of service. Realizing his reputation at stake, he gave them a second chance. He brings them in and says, I heard you've not worshipped the God that I've set up. Verse 14 and verse 15, he says, now if you're ready at the moment you hear uh, the music play, you fall down and worship the image, then all will be well. And at the end of verse 15, if you're writing your Bibles underline, what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? You see, if you underline that, because it's the same words of the wise men in the previous chapter. When Nebuchadnezzar said, you have to tell me your dream, they said, only a God can tell your dream. I mean, we can interpret if you tell us what it is, but only a God can do that. And, and then here, Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, uh, there, there, there's not a God that can deliver you out of my hands. That's a foreshadowing of what's to come. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, oh, but Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to answer you concerning this. And then really my two favorite verses in the book of Daniel. If it be so, our God we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of the blazing fire and he will deliver us out of your hands. But if not, I love those words. But if not, our God is able to deliver us. 
But if not, we're not going to bow to your God. We're going to honor him. But if not, Brian Chappell is one of the men that I'm reading that I studied Daniel. He's written a commentary on Daniel. Actually, it's a compilation of his sermons. And he comments on this section. He said, what a noble example of faith. They hoped for a miracle, but didn't demand one. They left everything in the hands of God. Consider that little phrase, but if not. We want our prayers answered, but if not. We want long life and good health, but if not, we want our children to prosper. We want the prodigal to come home. We want the marriage to be saved. We want the cancer to be gone, but if not. We want to see miracles happen, but if not, if God says no to your cherished dreams and your fondest hopes, will you still trust him? God says no to your plans for the future, will you still serve him? If God says no, when through tears you pray for those you love, will you still follow him? See, that's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said. God can deliver us, but if not, we're still going to honor him. We're not going to bow to your God. Some of you are going through fiery trials right now. The heat is hot. The prodigal hasn't come home. Your marriage is unraveling. Your job is boring. There's more month than there is money. Life is hard. You've prayed and prayed and prayed, but the heavens are like brass. Can you say, but if not? If God does not answer this the way that I desire, yet I will still follow him. Through the last uh, three years in our family, these verses have become ones that we cling to. Though the fig tree should not blossom, there are no fruit in the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy. Literally, the New American saying, I'll rejoice in the God of my salvation. When you go through the trial, this is my prayer for you. I've asked you to pray that for our family, for me. That regardless of what we go through, regardless of how deep the valley, regardless of how difficult the trial, if metastasis does come, that through that we will exalt in God, we'll lift his name up higher and higher and higher just as we sang. Amen? And you're going through trials and I'm going through trials. In the midst of those trials, we have the privilege, we have the privilege of rejoicing in our God. But if not. Chapel says this in his commentary in his sermons. He says, biblical faith is not confidence in particular outcomes. It's confidence in a sovereign God. You see, when things don't go the way you want, do you run from God? Do you blame God? Do you become angry at God? Do you shake your fist at God? Or you recognize he's a good God and your confidence is not in the outcome, it's in his character. I like what uh, Mark Buchanan says in a book called The Holy Wild. Faith, finally, is this. Resting so utterly in the character of God and the ultimate goodness of God that you trust him even when he seems untrustworthy. There are times, I mean, when abuse takes place. There are times when heartache takes place. There's times when the disease does come. There are times when the divorce does happen. There's times when the depression does not lift. Are you trusting so fully in the goodness of God that even when it seems like the heavens are brass, your trust is in him? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, you know what? Our God can deliver us. He has that power. But if not, 
we're not going to worship that piece of gold you have sitting up there. We're going to follow our God. Well, as you know, their faith is vindicated. I mean, it's quite interesting. He is madder than he was before. He stokes up the flame seven times hotter because they refused to bow down, beginning in verse 19. It says he gave orders for this furnace to be heated seven times higher than it was. And if you look at verse 21, he wraps them in all kinds of clothes to catch fire quicker, to be cremated quicker. Uh, so they get ready to throw them in the fiery furnace. The guy's throwing them in. The furnace is so hot that those guys die. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego throw them in the furnace. Verse 24, Nebuchadnezzar has a bird's eye view of what's happening. He says, uh, I thought we threw three guys in the furnace. Who's the other guy walking around who looks like a god? And all of a sudden he realizes that the God of Nebuchadnezzar, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is protecting them. So he calls out, look at verse 20, 26. He says, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, come here. And so they come walking out of the fire. I mean, this is pretty amazing. And so all of the leaders are there and they look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They said the, at the end of verse 27, the fire had no effect on their bodies. Their hair was not singed. Their, their, the uh, the, the uh, trousers were not damaged and the smell of fire was not even on them. I mean, that's like walking into a Mexican restaurant and walking out without having the smell of a fajita on you. I mean, you know what it's like to stand in front of a fire. You stand in front of a fire, you get smoke on you. I mean, the, these guys, I mean, they walk out of a fire. They're not burned. Nothing, they're not a hair. Some of us wouldn't have anything singed anyway, but I mean, nothing is singed on them. They walk out and God has totally protected and comforted them. I mean, it's an amazing story. You know, there are two questions that uh, we need to ask. First of all, somebody's missing in this story. Who's missing? Daniel. Where's Daniel? Have you ever thought about that when you read this chapter? Where's Daniel? You want me to tell you what we know about that? We don't know. <laughs> I don't know where he is. I, I'm reading like 10 commentaries. One guy says, well, maybe the king had sent him out on official business. Or maybe because he was really liked by Nebuchadnezzar, he told him to stay back. Or, or maybe he tipped him off and said, you need to leave because if you, don't come, if you come to this and don't bow down, you die. <clears throat> The bottom line is we don't know. The other thing that's quite remarkable is how ironic this passage is. Why were the Israelites in Babylon in the first place? Remember why they got sent there? Isaiah talked about that over and over. Ezekiel talked about that. They were in Babylon because they couldn't quit worshiping idols. They were exiled from the land that they were in because... They had these idols that they worshipped all the time, and God warned them, you keep worshipping the idols, you're going to exile. So there, there isn't it ironic now that here are three Hebrew men who refused to bow down to an idol, and they were there in the first place for bowing down to idols. <clears throat> and so you see the faith of these young men developed in a great way. The captives of Babylon are in bondage because of idolatry, and now they stand against idolatry. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are miraculously spared. The other question that we have to ask is, who is this fourth person? And I've got the same answer for you. I don't know. Some would say it's a theophany, the Greek word theophany. We get the word theos, theo, means God. Thano is the Greek word for appearance. It's the appearance of God. Some would say it's the pre-incarnate Christ walking with them. Nebuchadnezzar thought it was an angel. He himself says an angel has come and spared them. We don't know, though. Scriptures don't tell us. Perhaps it was pre-incarnate Christ, perhaps it was an angel, we don't know, but we know that just to the, the purpose of the story is to show that our God is greater than this and he can save 
his people. So he makes a proclamation. He brings them out. He said, blessed be the God of Shadrach. This is verse 28. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel. He's saying an angel came out, delivered his servants. And then look at verse 29. Therefore, I make a declaration among all the people, nations, and tongues that speak anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They'll be torn from limb to limb. Their house will be reduced to rubbish. And there's no other God who is able to deliver in this way. So the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper. Chaldeans had said, hey, these guys didn't bow down. You appointed them. There's a problem here. And now they're prospering. Nebuchadnezzar had a pretty bad day. I mean, he set up this idol because he wanted everybody to worship that idol. Maybe an idol with his head on it. We don't know. And he leaves proclaiming that there's another God greater than all gods. And it's not him or a Babylonian God, but it's the true God. Three applications are closed. Application number one, how great is our God? I hope you don't leave this building, leave this room, without singing in your heart, how great is our God. We sing that song sometimes, it's an older praise song, how great is our God, sing with me, how great is our God, and all will see how great is our God, age to age he stands, time is in his hands, beginning in the end. The Godhead three in one, Father, Spirit, Son, Lion and the Lamb, how great is our God. I hope you leave this place saying, what a great God we have. A God who can rescue men out of a fiery furnace like it's nothing. Secondly, sometimes God delivers us from the fire. Sometimes he allows us to be consumed by the fire. But he always walks with us in the fire. Let me say that again. Sometimes he delivers us from the fire. There's a trial, he takes us right out of it. Sometimes he allows us to be consumed by the fire. The trial doesn't go away. The end is not that great from our perspective. But I can tell you this, he always walks with us through the fire. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what's the next phrase say? Thou, what? Or with me. Death itself, he's going to walk you hand in hand through it. In Hebrews, he says, I will never leave you, nor will I what? I'm never going to get away from you. I'm not going to desert you. And so whatever you're gone through, whatever your family is fighting, whatever is deep within your heart, whatever is there, here's the great news. He's walking hand in hand with you. He walks with you every single day. Isaiah 41.10, he says, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He says, if you go through the waters, I'll be with you. Every step of the way, he's there. So number one, how great is our God? Number two, he walks every step of the way with us. And thirdly, thirdly, the great deliverer is Jesus. You see, these guys were spared from a temporal fire. Jesus saves us from an eternal fire. And my friends, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus is your Savior, if you're not sure if you've ever trusted, maybe you're trusting in religion, your good works, whatever it is, I invite you to bow down to the true God. Not one made in man's image, but the true God. And recognize he sent his son on your behalf so you can have eternal life if you place your faith in him. Because it's in Christ and Christ alone that will escape the eternal fires. When I read this passage, 
Here's what I see. Faith is not about everything turning out okay. Faith is trusting God, no matter how things turn out. See, it, it, things don't always turn out okay. But we trust him no matter what. You've heard me talk about Polycarp. He's one of my great heroes of the faith. He, was, he lived in the first century, first and second century. He was called before the pro-council for two reasons, because of his outspoken faith in Christ, but most importantly because of jealousy, because of the great uh, church that was being built under his leadership. And so he's called before the pro-council and told to deny his faith. He answered the pro-council and said, for 86 years I have served him. He has never wronged me. How can I blaspheme, how can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The pro-council threatened to cast him in with wild beasts, and he answered, call them out. He was then warned that he'd be burned at the stake. Even that failed to move him. He responded by looking at the pro-council when threatened to be burned at the stake. He said, you threaten me with fire that burns only for a moment, but you're ignorant of the eternal fire that's reserved for the ungodly like you. That's one courageous and bold man right there, I'm telling you. The last words of Polycarp were these words. Oh, Father of thy beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, I bless you that you've counted me worthy to suffer for you on this day. And then his body was set ablaze. And his life was lost, only to be gained in the presence of our Savior. Faith is not about everything turning out okay. It's trusting God, no matter how things turn out. Father, I pray right now for each of us that as we walk through fiery trials, whatever they may be, because we know you're a good God who can be trusted. That instead of blame and anger and bitterness, there would be a pressing into you even more. Thank you for walking with us through the valley of the shadow of death. Thank you for never leaving or deserting us. Thank you for going through the waters with us. Thank you for upholding us with your righteous right hand. Thank you that in the midst of the trials of life, you never run from us. So we proclaim that you're a great God. We proclaim and thank you for walking with us through the fiery trials. And we proclaim that Jesus is the ultimate deliverer, the one who can be trusted for eternal life. We state that our faith is in him, in him alone. Whatever you're going through today, my friend, I pray that you'll take that burden, turn it over to the Savior who loves you and gave his life for you. You'll recognize as a good God who walks with you every step of the way. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Lord bless you.